What is going on? Welcome to The Land Podcast. This is Jake Hofer, and this week we have a returning guest, Skip Sly. If you don't know Skip, he was on the show here earlier this year, and he's from Michigan, moved to Iowa. He started buying some ground and improving it and learning basically lessons you can only learn by doing stuff. So I think that's always a awesome guest to have here and uh, has a lot of experience, has done a ton of projects, large scale projects, small scale projects, and I guarantee you're gonna walk away from this conversation with some good information, and that's always the goal. Um, and also we recorded an episode with Skip for the Exodus podcast, which went out last week. So that one talks about all the different states here in the Midwest and how they can improve and why mature bucks leave your farm and so much more. So if you didn't tune into that, I encourage you to go over to the Exodus podcast and check that out. And I also encourage you to listen to the first episode we did with Skip here uh, on the Land Podcast. So this one is covering a lot of different topics. And we're going to be asking Skip things like, don't make these buyers mistakes. Um, also, how to find a good deal when buying land and questions to ask yourself when buying land. Uh, it's basically a way to find small farms that have big bucks and just a good conversation. I think you guys are really going to learn learn some. I know I did. And like I said, want to say thanks to Skip for taking the time to carve out a day, um, basically a weekend, of uh, a day of his weekend to record all this. So really appreciate that. And let's go ahead and get right into it. And real quick, it wouldn't be an intro if I didn't mention what the goal of this podcast is. Really quick, the goal of this podcast is to help 100 people buy their first farm. So there's a couple ways to be included on this spreadsheet. Number one, if you are in the state of Illinois and you are in an area that I have expertise, I'd be more than happy to help you purchase your first farm as a buyer's agent. It doesn't cost you anything. And uh, it's always good to have buyer's representation, especially on your first deals as you're learning the ropes. Number two, if you are looking in an area and you want to see if I know anyone in your neck of the woods that I would personally do business with, I will do so. Let me know, reach out, and if there's someone I would do business with, I will send them, and you guys can get connected and see if it's a good fit. And if there's someone I don't know out there, I'm not gonna just do a Google search and send you an agent because you could do that too. And number three, if you just simply learn something from this that helped inspire you to take action or learn uh, something that made you more knowledgeable going into your first deal, I want to know so I can add you to this. This is my goal and uh, it's been very rewarding. We had two people last week again, so we are just plugging right away. So I hope you guys have a great week. Until next time, here we go. Let's get into the conversation with Skip. Well, uh, Skip, thanks for letting us chat about deer land again uh, in case they didn't caught, catch the first podcast or the habitat podcast that we did talking about state regulations everything else now we're talking about a different thing but before we get too far into this give your uh, 20 second bio and we'll, we'll dive right into it 20 second bio like land hunting this uh, you me you uh okay uh so 43 two kids live in des moines live in iowa love it here Love hunting, love outdoors, um, just eating up with everything outdoors. I mean, 365, I'm out here working, working on my farms. Uh, this is my passion. This is my job. Uh, I love my job. So, I Did do, you ever I, think what you're doing is was realistic when you started? No, 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 no. Um, but we also grew up with pretty much... Uh, nothing. So having like a good job that paid well, that was like a big deal. That was like, whoa, you know, if I could get to that someday or have a hundred acres someday, that'd be a huge deal. So, um, yeah, I mean, I never thought I'd be like doing this for a job or out at a farm every day. Absolutely not. I, I, it didn't go through my mind at all until maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. Dang. Do you think someone could do that same thing? Same mm -hmm. path? Yeah. With for sure what you're doing oh absolutely yep. no hesitation no hesitation no hesitation that's good it just you know passion drive um a clear not necessarily a clear direction but if if you're loving what you're doing and and you're and you're successful because you're passionate about something and, and if you're passionate about something educated about something you're going to figure out how to be successful with what you're doing so and when you're successful with what you're doing it just it's it's a snowball effect and eventually you can kind of choose your own path you know and if I was, if I had chased a job where I just wanted to get ahead, I just wanted to cl climb a corporate ladder just to make more money, you know, it probably wouldn't have, you know, 
I, I wouldn't have the passion and the drive behind it. So I, pr- I probably wouldn't have been successful doing that because I didn't want to do that. So um, it's not to say that's right or wrong, you know, climbing a corporate ladder or something like that. It just wasn't for me. So if you, if you find something you love um, and there's, you know, there's some amount of ability to make a living from it or uh, turning it into your expertise or relating it to what you're doing. Like, Hey, I want to, I love hunting in, and I'm going to figure out how to farm or something. There's always a way to do this. Yes. Okay. And so a quick bio, you've bought and sold roughly over 200 farms or 200 roughly. Yeah. Maybe something like that. Now, um, more than a hundred. Yeah, for sure. More than that. Now I have rolled a lot of them into farms I have now. So it's so, and that was one thing maybe also after that last podcast, <laughs> I wanted to clarify, like I didn't like buy them to for the purpose of selling them sure, and to making yeah, yeah. money so i yeah. just kept rolling them into other farms and rolling them closer to home mm-hmm. and rolling them into my home farms and then farms around my home farm and stuff i can actually you know plant corn and beans on or you know make a living from so um you know i've just mainly uh i bought i've owned stuff all across the state and then slowly i'll just kind of sell one and get it a little closer sell one get it a little closer and, and then there was a period where I relocated and I, I sold a whole bunch of farms and then I bought just a massive amount of farms, some of them small, some of them nice size, um, fixed those all up and, and sold those all off to, to buy a couple bigger farms and just, mm-hmm. I've been all over the place, but I wouldn't necessarily, so I, I would almost want to clarify, it's, it's not like I did it for the money. I mean, money's a part of it. Money pays the bills and so on, but I did it for the end goal of, of having, a farm and having different farms that I can do, you know, I can farm them. I can, uh, have a living from them. I can do this as my job. That was my goal. It wasn't to have money. It was to have, um, my life be in farms and to be this, be out working on my farms every day. Yeah. And I guess my perspective with framing it that way is you've just seen a lot. You've done a lot, seen a lot, like just by doing that for that long, you've learned a lot of lessons that, uh, could save other people hardship or expensive lessons. So that's kind of the goal. No doubt. The goal of it is just to flatten the learning curve because it can be, yeah. I assume, would you agree, very steep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dangerously and, steep, maybe. Yeah. And even now, I mean, I can't tell people what's going to happen in the next five years or 10 years or what inflation is <clears throat> going to do, what interest rates are going to do, how bad a recession is going to be, if people are going to lose their butts in farms. I don't know all this stuff. I mean, I'm learning along with the rest of the crowd because we can't predict the future. But, um, you know, it might it might change my perspective to where I'm more I'm just more cautious about things, mm-hmm. and I'm also at an age where I'm more cautious. You know, like I said in the last last podcast, if you're in your 20s and you're doing things that are risky, it's not that big a deal. If you're doing something when you got kids at home that are dependent on you, um, and you know you have a house you have a house payment or something like that, you don't want to be frivolous or or extremely risky with what you're doing investment wise or um, taking on things that you're not real sure about or shaky. You know. So my threshold for risk has gone down over time. and By what multiple or percentage? <laughs> I mean, now, you know, if somebody said, hey, you have all these farms that you, you know, I literally have probably saved for farms or wanted to buy farms or invested into little accounts to save for farms since I was maybe 10 or 12 years old. Now I'm 43, so that's 30 years. If somebody said, hey, you could do these other things and jeopardize all these farms, all the farms you have now and your home farm, I'm not going to do that. I'm yeah. not going to take any risk. Like, hey, do this new visit, business venture and leverage your farms against it. I'm not going to do that. Sure. Now, if somebody says, hey, you know, do, do something in business where you could lose a little money, 5% of your worth or something like that, or a little bit of your land, you know, I'll only do things that if, if it goes terribly wrong, I can afford to lose, you know I mean? That's just common sense. If, you know, if I, if I pick a business venture to try or to dabble in, and I like doing different things, I'm, I probably will always do different things and I'm always open to doing different things. Um, but I'm certainly not going to do something that's going to risk my my the farms or the farms that I want to go to my kids and to my family someday. And that's that's my whole financial motivation between by buying and selling farms and putting them here. It's not to make money. I have the farms that I have now to leave to the next generations. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm going to put it in a trust that they can't do certain things with them. They can't section it out. They can't sell it. So these are meant to be passed on to further generations. And I don't want to do anything that jeopardizes that. Yeah, that's great. Now you mentioned you can't predict the future, and but there's 
the same, you know, like history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yeah, no doubt. So what do you, what's, what's going to rhyme with what's from the past to what's going in the future? So, and this, uh, this is not financial advice. There's the disclaimer. Right, right, right. So clearly we go, where, where does our gut go with this? And, and I say, I would say my gut goes, um, that these things usually follow cycles and I've seen th- three really big, roughly three, and maybe you say there's little mini cycles throughout that, whatever. But I've seen three cycles in land. I remember right around um, 2001, uh, there was a big crash. Like, you know, you had the uh, you had 9/11, and that just went through the economy, and that tanked things pretty hard. Um, so I remember things going really down there, where people were really scared. You could get some really good deals, and that's right when I was graduating college, and that was right when I was buying my first farm. So things were really down. You could get really good deals, and then it just went exponentially up. And then it kind of teetered off, and it stayed steady. Well, then we had our next big crash of 2008, which was very different. It was for different reasons, but it was another reason to have a crash. And land prices went down again, and they corrected, and it stayed stagnant, very slow. Uh, And then it steadily rose again. And then the ag and... Uh, hunting market were kind of two different animals, kind of right around like the 2014, 15. That's when ag prices went way up. The commodity prices went way up. So we had this big boom in ag and rec stayed actually fairly flat. And then this last round we've had here the last two years since COVID, um, you know, this is the third cycle I have been in. Now I follow, I've followed a lot of the other cycles and tried to understand the cycles of the eighties, the fifties, the sixties, and even the great depression. I've, I've really tried to understand those cycles, but this is the, the most recent one that I've seen on a boom. I've never seen anything like it. This last one, I've never seen anything remotely close to it. I mean, I saw it after 2001 where things came up and people were starting to buy farms without looking at them. And then in 2007, before the crash, we had another one where people, like a farm was posted online and it was selling without people looking at them. And that's kind of a metric I use. Like farms are selling without people even looking at them. And they're hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. And, And now I saw it again where these farms were just selling just instantaneously 24 hours less than 24 hours multiple offers in 24 hours without people even looking at them and this last run up in prices i have never seen anything like it but it's a product of uh the government putting 40 percent more money into the market so to be expected that these prices you know and i maybe i didn't see it coming um i thought it was going to go down before covid but then you know when you inject 40% more money into the market, yeah, things went crazy, and they did. And I've never seen anything like it. It's just bananas. And my gut tells me, I mean, what I'm seeing right now is things are slowing down. You know, the feds are continually to raise, continuing to raise rates, thus slowing it down, which, again, like we talked about in the previous podcast, that's what's to be expected. So things are slowing down. Now it's just a matter of is it going to slow down? Is it going to become more of like a buyer's market? Are things going to sit longer? I think that's almost a sure thing. Yeah. My gut. And then and then it's just a matter of is there something else thrown into that? Mm-hmm. Do we have a catastrophe happen? They're like, what? All the tech stocks went down the tubes. The economy went with it. Um, you know, we have this, you know – a, a different war breaks out. Who knows? I mean, all these weird things. It's usually something different. It's like like planes crashing into buildings in 2001. Nobody saw that one coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, 2008, the... the, the um, Housing bubble. Yeah. The so the, so that was unique. So if, if it is another catastrophe, and I'm not saying it will or won't, but if it is, it will be something we, we're not quite thinking about. It'll be something different that pulls the whole market down. It'll just take the whole economy with it. So... You know, I think things naturally are going to slow. And then if something else does happen on top of this, um, where the where the economy really sinks, then then things will go majorly in the buyer's favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there'll be very few buyers out there. Um, and the market could swing the other way. I don't know if that'll happen. I think, you know, if things go status quo, it's just going to slow down. Yeah. But for everyone that is like reading the headlines, like to slow down, like what it, what it would be normally – is something catastrophic like oh, that farmer's been on there for two months now something's wrong yeah we'll see that more um 
And, you know, the more people hear the words recession, the more people hear the everybody's an expert economist now. And, and I mean, it is good to understand, oh, the Fed's raising rates. What's that mean? 0.75. What's that mean? Everybody knows what that means now. Um, you know, you, you add one more percent to the, uh, the interest rates, it's going to slow down. And, um, you know, more people hear those words, interest rate increase, recession, slow down, buyer's market. People are going to get more cautious. The buyers are going to pull back some. The sellers are going to be more eager to sell. And all these, there's a whole group of people I know that thought about selling six months ago that are like, hey, oh, yeah. do you still think I can get those prices? Probably not. You should have sold when when it was at its absolute peak, which Art know, of time. Impossible yeah, to yeah. time. And and you know, that's usually how it goes. Now a lot of these people are going, Hey, maybe I should have sold six months ago on this this piece of ground that I really don't want or I'm not attached to or I I, I wanna sell it and I just didn't get around to it or didn't feel like it or it was too hot, so I didn't think it'd be smart to sell it. Well, you should have sold it when it was crazy high and now you're probably going to get less money for some of these things. So I think it is coming down a little bit. Mm-hmm. So someone that's listening to this now, they've been saving, they've been you know, listening to this podcast for over a year now, and they're trying to get ready to go ahead and, and pull the trigger on a farm. Would you, what would you tell that person? Because what I typically, because I get a ton of emails, I get a ton of calls, and this is the advice I typically do. If it's a farm you really like and you're comfortable to do it, then I wouldn't let external forces you know, halt you from moving forward with what your goals are. Agree. Um, the more money, if you're like, Hey, I've got a job now and I cut my expenses where I can take another thousand dollars a month and I'm making that up. Maybe it's 200, but I can put more money in the bank every month by working this extra job or by doing this extra thing, or I got a pay raise. Just keep stashing as much money as you can. Cause cash is going to be King. The more that interest rates come up, the more that you have to put down, um, the more buying power you have coming up here with rising interest rates, the better off you'll be. So if you're a little bit patient, you know, if somebody says, hey, I'm ready to go, but who knows, maybe five years from now it'll slow way down. No, don't don't wait five years. If you're ready to go and you find the right farm, buy it. No questions, no doubt. I, w- I would do it uh, as long as you're not getting yourself into a pickle, but I would stash away money mm-hmm. and – hoard as much money as you possibly can because the more you have to put down the better buying power and the better buying position you you're at you're going to have more opportunities because of that so that leads to a different question so someone saved up enough to buy let's say a 40 and if they stay the course of what they're trying to do you know there's they're buying a farm because they want to enjoy it they've saved up enough money to probably buy a 40 but they're like well i kind of want an 80 like they just know if like before they even buy it, they're not even like they already know the the next stop where they want to be in that journey. Would you tell them, you know, go ahead and, and buy the right forty if you find one that makes sense and everything else, or would you tell them like, all right, we'll just keep knuckling down for the next year or two and see where you're at? I personally would buy the right one. So when I looked at buying a farm, I wouldn't say, Hey, I can buy as much as an eighty. I might say, Hey, I can buy between twenty and 80 or 20 and 100 acres and anything that was in between there i was okay with it i didn't have to maximize myself because if i found the right deal on a 40 but i was able to buy 100 acres but if i find the right 40 i'm buying that 40 Mm -hmm. i mean i'm gonna and then if i have a little extra money and i want to buy another 40 pops up it might limit myself if an, an 80 comes up but maybe i buy two 40s but i wouldn't get so i wouldn't just try and push myself i have to buy an 80 just give yourself a range the more flexibility you have in what you buy the better so that comes to distance how far you're willing to go if you're willing to go two hours you will have far more opportunities than if you're willing to go 30 minutes if you're willing to buy 20 to 100 acres versus i have to buy (laughs) 65.275 acres you're going to have more opportunities so broaden it as much as you can broaden it the better I mean, if you were in a situation where you didn't mind buying in multiple states, that would help you. I mean, if you were if you weren't married to a certain location, that's going to benefit you greatly. So, um, and the other thing, if you buy the right forty correctly, you buy it at the right price, and you get working on it with with the right strategy and the right approach immediately. If for some odd reason you bought that forty and the market's reasonable, and that magic eighty came up that you just had to have you probably could sell that 40 even if you're like hey i'm gonna i found the magic 80 i bought this 40 you probably could figure out a way to quickly sell that 40 and get into that 80 if you did it right 
you could probably sell that 40, make a little bit of money if you did a few improvements, not a lot, but make a little bit and, and roll it into that 80. And the other thing, there's a lot of creative ways to buy things too. You might say, hey, listen, I'm a solid buyer. I bought this 40. I want your 80. You know, would you give me 90 days to close on that 80? Knowing you can move that 40 in 90 days and just see see what a seller would be willing to, to work with you on. So having flexibility in real estate, whether it's the distance, the money, the size, how you buy it, negotiating things with the seller within reason, the more flexible you are, the better. Do you have any negotiation tips? Mm. Give us a secret sauce. So <laughs> if you're in a position where where you don't have to have something, you're not married to a certain piece that you want to buy, it doesn't have to be that piece. If you don't get so emotionally attached to it, you're going to be in a far better spot. Now, if I'm a farmer that has a farm come up for sale next to me that hasn't been for sale in 50 years, and I know three of the other neighbors are going to buy it, I am just in a corner. And I'm probably just going to have to do whatever it takes, and that's why these auctions get run crazy, crazy. high. But if I'm willing to say, hey, I'm, I'm willing to go on a two-hour radius, and I'm going to put five farms on my radar that I'm interested in, and I'm going to start bidding on these five farms, and maybe it's two, maybe it's three, maybe it's 20, but you just have to be able to, to lose some of those farms and be like, you know what? If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. I used to get somewhat bent out of shape when I missed out on a great farm, like kind of bummed out or had to have that. That would have been a killer deal. Now if I bid on a farm – if if it doesn't work out or if the seller's hard to deal with, I just walk away and I, it doesn't even bother me. Or if I lose out on it, like, hey, there's another guy bidding on this, okay? If he buys it, that's fine. Mm -hmm. And and they're not feeding me a bunch of baloney. There's oftentimes is other buyers, and I just look at it like, you know, if if somebody else buys it, that's great, fine, no big deal. I don't I don't lose any sleep over it. It, it doesn't really bother me. I'll just move on to the next one. So. You know, and right now, if I buy another farm, great. If I don't buy anything for another couple of years, I'm okay with that too. I don't have to have a farm. Um, but for a new buyer, you know, that says I do need to have a farm, I want to have a farm, just give yourself as much flexibility. If you lose out on five farms and you get the sixth one, you will have something. If you have your mindset to it, you have the money, you have the structure set up to buy a farm, it maybe takes you six. It might take you, take you ten farms. You will get it. So just don't get bent out of shape if you lose some. Mm -hmm. in the i mean you always had the goal of wanting to buy land for a really long time when you bought that first 80 was it like a you know like ah uh, like is it was, an excitement like that's supposed to be like the heavens opening it was pretty cool it was pretty cool it was the greatest farm on earth we were gonna shoot just countless monsters off of there every year nobody could screw up our hunts um, we were just, I mean, never to be sold. So yeah, it was the greatest farm on earth. Uh, and you know, I basically talked to the bank and I'm like, okay, I got to come up with this much per month. So there's a little pressure there. Um, and that ended up being actually pretty easy. But right when I signed those papers, I'm like, Ooh, I, I actually got to come up with this each month. That was a little nerve wracking when I signed it, uh, six months into a piece of cake. And then I realized, huh, we're not shooting just countless giant bucks off here this what not maybe quite as easy as what i thought um and you know like we talked in the last podcast i mean uh you know my forever farm turned into maybe maybe i won't keep this forever it, it took a couple years yeah the shininess it, it wore off yeah it wore off yeah I'm not there yet. <laughs> I'm still, it, still madly It takes in love. a while. And I know, <laughs> I know people who did buy that first farm that never parted with it. They're like, I married this farm. And 20 years later, you know, maybe it's an 80 acres. And, you know, for some people, that's the right thing. And yeah. um, buying and selling farms or moving or uh, if they're in a location they like, you know, this isn't for everybody. Land ownership isn't for everybody. There's a major percentage of the population that owning land is not for them. Uh, you got to be wired kind of a certain way and you got to be able to, there's a, there's a lot of other things that come with land ownership that people don't realize the stresses and, you know, so talk about some of those. I mean, you know, worrying about people being in your land, the trespassing, the poaching, um, the property tax increases, uh, the weather, you know, when I hunted by permission, I didn't care what the weather was cause I was going here, uh, 
in this state during October and I was going to go there in November. I didn't pay any attention. Now I'm growing things. Now I'm farming. Now my livelihood is dependent on it. So um, there's all these other things that, that come in and dealing with the neighbors and not getting along with this one and getting along with this one. Thankfully, where I'm at now, I mean, I get along great with all of my neighbors. Um, when I started, when I was a young guy, I didn't get along with all the neighbors. I was a young punk. They looked at me as this young punk in his young 20s. That Were you a punk? Not really. Maybe a little. I mean, I was naive. I, I totally admit it. I was very naive. But that was the first time I ever owned land. I didn't understand how things worked. I didn't understand fence agreements and keeping up with your fence and cattle and, and um, how things shook out with neighbors. And, you know, a lot of these neighbors were 30 years older than me and thought I was a young punk and thought, you know, Oh, daddy gave him his money and they just kind of, I, I would say maybe a, a couple of them I didn't start out on the right foot. And I was very naive. I was just naive, but pro- probably to be expected with somebody in their young 20s. They're, um, most people in their young 20s uh, are kind of naive and a lot of them are kind of stupid in certain <laughs> ways. And I maybe fit into that category. So for sure. I learned a lot quickly. What about, um, we were talking about you know finding farms that that cash flow or have a certain amount of uh, return. Yep. And then it's really not the amount of return maybe that I think just because there's so much you have you end up buying for the place. Yeah. So like let's just say for ease of discussion, um, a farm costs a hundred thousand dollars, and you're like, hey, this farm has uh, ten thousand dollars worth of income. So you go, okay, it's a it's a hundred thousand dollar farm. It's ten thousand. I mean. I suppose that'd be 10% rate of return. wouldn't be that, but let's just say it was. Let's say it was 10% rate of return, which no farm is. Um, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, yeah, there's property taxes. That's uh, 1500 bucks. And then, oh, yeah, I'm traveling there all the time. My gas, that's another 1000 Oh, I put it in these food plots. I put it in these blinds, and all of a sudden, it just gets whittled way down. So, you know, but the, that example is probably not the best, but let's just say like a 3% uh, farm. Hey, this farm's got a 3% rate of return. All of a sudden, after you realize how much you're monkeying with it, how much you're putting into it, your plots, your your time you're going out there, little projects, the improvements, all of a sudden 3% gets shaved down to a percentage and a half really quick. And if you look at any kind of an investment, if somebody said, hey, this is spitting out 1.5%, one, one it's not a great investment. So um, if you're like, hey, I'm going to buy a farm and this thing's just going to be a cash cow right out of the gate with a minimum amount down, not going to happen. Not going to happen. They're not cash cows, especially starting out. Have you ever bought any other forms of real estate? Uh, so I have a, I have one other type of real estate, and that's a uh, industrial building that I rent out, which is a better rate of return. But there's other headaches to that. Really, I would say fundamentally, all my eggs are in the real estate basket. But the reason I can do this now it's just, you know, I've been in it for so long and things have appreciated so much and inflation and, um, you know, back in the day, what was expensive and a low rate of return, man, you paid two grand an acre for this. Well, now that's super cheap and cash rents have came up. So things have been paid down and, you know, it's just a different, it's a different world, but, um, it takes a long time to make farms a stable income or investment. And that's why, you know, if somebody says, hey, I want to be a farmer when I grow up, most people are like, oh, you'll never do that unless you inherit a farm. And I mean, there's some truth to that. It is very difficult. I mean, especially in today's environment, the stuff is so expensive. And when farms are selling for ten and $15,000 an acre, that's a difficult one to get into. Mm-hmm. I know I've asked other guests. I can't remember if I asked on the very first one, but just the general, you know, appreciation of land you can put in the calculator like do you think in 20 years i better just i better do the math otherwise someone's gonna say otherwise so let's say so as i'm typing this out at four thousand dollars an acre and let's do a 20-year scope and what what estimated range i mean would you say five percent annual return four percent yeah if if you're improving it, if you're buying a fix a fix up farm and you're doing some work yourself, I think you could probably add twenty percent to farm value. So how do you equate for that? You know, um, that's not dependent on the market though. That's sure. just 
That's, that's just active. Yes. So I think a lot of people, if they put in some work, they can make a farm go up in value by 20%. Now, I think any good investment, if you were to look at like a historically good part of the stock market, they say like any investment would double every seven or eight yeah. years, something like that. I think farmland might touch on that. But now you, you got if you start adding in the income from the farm plus the appreciation, I think you'll get there. Mm-hmm. If you took all the income and said, hey, it spit out 3% each year, and then it also appreciated mm-hmm. at 5%. Now you're at 8% if you took you know, if you took all that income and um, didn't spend it or didn't put it back in the yeah. ground, stuff like that. So, I mean, roughly, I don't know exactly where it'll be or historically exactly where it's been, but I would generally say um, with the income from ground, like if you got like a half half piece of uh, a ground that's half income, half timber, and it's producing 2.5%, 3% income or say 2 and it goes up in 5% of value, you're at a total of 7%. I'd say that's somewhat realistic to yeah. say ground's going to appreciate you know, 5% in value over mm-hmm. the long run. So I, the, the question I have then, so like this, that $4,000 piece of dirt that someone has in their mind right now, in 30 years, based off that math and assumption, that's going to be a $17,000. It, it will, and people go, there's no way it's going to be that way. But it will. But it will, but here's the reason why. Because of inflation. Right. Inflation will get us there. And inflation, you know, you look back at this stuff and you say that, geez, 25 years ago it was selling for $1,000 an acre. Well, and they're like, well, I know people who make $100,000 and that's a, a good salary. Well, back then, you know, $35,000 or $40,000 was a good salary, you know, 30, 40 years ago, whatever it would be. Um, so inflation changes a lot and it, it doesn't it doesn't quite um, – it's just hard to it's hard to visualize that something can be worth four thousand now and go to seventeen thousand dollars later. It's, it's, if the market stayed flat, yeah, that'd be insane. But inflation's pretty much the big reason why it'll get there. Yeah, and I just bring that up so people, because everyone's looking in the rearview mirror like, oh, that sold for a thousand dollars twenty years ago. Well, it's gonna happen the same exact thing in the next twenty years. Where people are gonna look back and but, say the same thing. But think about here's what I thought, and I remember that. When I first bought land, it was like just over a thousand bucks, and people were saying, "Man, it was just selling for four hundred dollars." Well, say it was a thousand dollars, and then you go, "Okay, every seven years it doubles, or eight years." So you go from a thousand dollars, it doubles. Now it's two thousand, and then it doubles again. Now it's four thousand. That's over just two cycles of the, of it doubling. So you know, and that's just a a good investment. That's not like a crazy investment. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of the stock market does. It's a lot of you know solid investments, seven eight percent per year. So um, for something to go from one thousand and double to two thousand, and then double again to four thousand, and then double again to eight thousand, I mean it's not a stretch, and that doesn't mean it's going to be unattainable for people either. So because everything else, yes, falls along. Yes. With so it. so even if I wasn't able to buy land now, and I knew, you know, uh, fifteen years from now, ground might be worth twelve thousand dollars an acre or something like that. I wouldn't put it out of my mind for attainment. I think it's still very attainable. Mm-hmm. So when you're going through and looking, you how how often are you looking at listings? Probably every other every other a few times a week. And are you looking at what, what are some of the websites you look at? Like Landwatch. Mm, yeah. Do you look at Zillow Realtor as well? Yeah. Yeah, I'll kind of look at them all. Zillow, um, Lands of America, and then I'll look at certain. Um, certain realtors' websites, and then so- sometimes I'll look at some of the um, uh, small realtors' websites that maybe don't put things on Zillow and the bigger websites. So, um, And sometimes I'll go a month without looking at farms. Sometimes mm-hmm. I just take a break from it, and I don't, I don't want to look at it. So, Yeah. Um, so when you're reading some of those listings, what are, some, what are some things you pay attention to? Or like if you read something, like, Ugh. Is it, or is it just you go do your own due diligence? Um, I mean, right away for me, I'll look at the, I'll look at the aerial clearly. I'll look at the aerial. I'll look at, uh, the corn suitability rating, which every state has productivity ratings. Illinois has something else. Missouri has something else, but I'll look at the corn suitability rating. And that just gives me a rough basis for what my cash rent could be. And it's, it's a rough estimate or what my CRP income could be. And then I'll probably look at, you know, if it's in with my proximity of something I would buy, um, 
you know, if it doesn't have deer pictures, I kind of like that. If it's like needs a lot of fixing up, maybe some old people owned it and did nothing to it for 20 years, those are the kind of farms I like. If it's got, you know, years worth of deer pictures um, and they, they spend it as a, a turnkey farm, it's not that I don't want that farm. It's not that I wouldn't want that farm. It's just I have nothing. There's not much room there. I can't go in there a lot of times and improve it or or turn a turnkey farm into a turnkey farm, even though there's probably a lot of things to do. So I would rather find something that, that needs a lot of work just because I have the machinery, I have the ability, I like doing it. It's kind of my job. Um, where it's, you know, the spare projects I take on, I like improving a farm. So, mm-hmm. and you can, you know, buying a farm that's not turnkey versus turnkey, clearly you're going to pay less. Yeah. So Yeah, with more forced depreciation, obviously, yep. by improving it. So, okay. What about when, like, have you just learned to be able to decipher different keyword and different keywords and phrases? Because I, I mean, I look at a bunch too, and it's like uh, mature, marketable timber, and then yeah, you, like, do you do you just disregard all of that? Yeah, and you just like, I need to go. Yeah. if you're interested, I'll just go see it for myself. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't usually even <laughs> now, and I wouldn't advise this to anybody else. But me now, if you're just asking about myself, yeah, I I don't even read through the listings. I want to know. What the area looks like, I want to know the location. I want to maybe see a couple pictures of the land just so I have an idea. Um, some income details, the nuts and bolts, but how they spice up the listing, how they make it sound great, I, I don't I don't need to hear that stuff. And a lot of times, like, hey, uh, lots of mature walnuts. Well, I'll go out there, and the walnuts are 12 inches in diameter. I'll be like, yeah, there's mature walnuts here in about 50 years. <laughs> Um, so a lot of times these people don't know what they're talking about. So mm-hmm. I usually disregard most of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and I think a lot of people here are probably, most people are probably going to buy a parcel that's 15, 20, 40, 45, 50 acres. So do you think that people can have a parcel of that size and still have a lot of success relative to the size of the parcel? So like basically small farm, big deer, is it possible? Yes. Yeah. So I mean, the majority of the big deer we've killed, um, I mean, the majority, I guess, to this day would be on, like, permission stuff. But then secondarily, the big deer we've killed, which are mature. I mean, talking five-year-old deer and plus, we're off of 40, 60, 80, 100-acre tracks. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, any, if you if you maximize that property and you enhance the habitat on that property, like we had talked about earlier, you can bring that property from, you know, a 2 out of 10 to a – a six or a seven out of 10 pretty quickly. Uh, and then you can, for what the potential of that property is, it's not like you're going to make, you know, a 60 acre piece be a 10 that's equivalent to a 600 acre piece. that's a 10. They're, they're not going to be equivalent clearly, but you can make a 60 acre piece, you know, hold mature, hold older deer for that area. Now in Iowa, that would mean absolutely. I cannot think of a 60 acre piece. I, I believe you could get any 60 acre piece in Iowa to have a mature deer five and a half and older in Michigan. That might be, you know, a two or three year old and older, uh, in Illinois, probably the same four, maybe five, four for sure in Illinois. And that's, I haven't been in Illinois for quite a while, but I would say, you know, a 60 acre piece, my expectations would be, Hey, there might not be a mature deer there now, but in two years, I want there to be consistently a four or a five year old deer Mm -hmm. there. And I know that, you know, from the day I bought it, if there was X, Y, Z amount of bucks, I know I can keep several bucks safe every single year by doing improvements to that farm. So, yeah, you there's a huge difference you can make on a 60-acre farm or a 40-acre farm or an 80-acre farm that's going to hold more deer, keep more deer safe, and allow some deer, a few deer to get to maturity. Are you going to save 10 out of 10 bucks and allow 10, 10 deer to get to maturity? Absolutely not. But if you can get one or two, I mean, that's success. And just have your expectations set there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this person, they have that 40. Now they're trying to think, do I go buy a different 40 or would I try to get an 80? So would you rather have basically, let's let's amplify it a little bit, Uh, 550s or or 1250? I would say personality issue, personal choice, no right or wrong answer. Uh, me personally, I would rather have 250 just because I get sick of popping between all these farms, moving equipment. I'm too involved in them with machinery and and fixing them up. 
um, where I hate, I, I just, I don't like driving like tractors and big equipment. It's just a, it's a pain in the butt, um, from one farm to another strictly on killing more mature bucks. It's probably better to have a, a bunch of smaller farms in the right area. No right or wrong answer though. I mean, if somebody had all the ambition on earth, if they could go from a 40 to an 80, sell the 80 to a 160, fix the 160 up to buy a 320, I mean, it sounds maybe, I mean, that, I just went through that very quickly, but over five to seven years, I mean, it's doable. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would want to do is just continue to get bigger. And I think that's what, I, th- I think I went from like a 80 to 120 to like a 320-ish, 315-ish. So you talked about how your, your ner- you know, nerves when you bought the 80. Okay, so during that time frame, when you got to the 320, what was that like? Were that was, you, that were was you easy. More, that was easy. Yeah, because you'd done it through, <clears throat> I'd done it a few times. So now I knew what I was getting into. So um, had I gone from like an 80 into like a 320 with a ton of debt or something like that, that probably would have been nerve wracking. But I had, I had shifted several times. I had, um, I had rotated a few farms. So, and I knew the game. I knew, I knew how the finances worked. I knew how the cash rent works. I knew how the income streams worked. I just, I knew it. So I was very comfortable with it. So the 80 was far more nerve wracking. The very first buy was far more nerve wracking than buying that 320 down the road or whatever it is several years later, which was a lot bigger farm and a lot more money. But then, it, you know, you're just more comfortable by that time and confident. Yeah, part of the process of just doing it. What would you tell someone that's 20 or 30 years old right now if you had to summarize it basically to, to, to what they should strongly consider? Um, strongly consider in what way? Just throughout, like this, they're in the same spot before you bought that 80 and we're just like a level of nervousness. Naive in your words. Yes, punk. <laughs> you, you, you can be naive. You can be a bit of a punk as long as you're extremely driven <clears throat> frugal with your money, smart with your money, um, willing to grind it out, do things you're not willing to do. If you're, um, so yeah, I don't, I'm, <clears throat> if you're, if you're financially responsible, passionate and driven enough with a plan and you're basically can stash money away and then target the right farm and say, yes, there is a way I can make this farm work without, um, you know, stressing myself to the absolute max, but, uh, get by a few years. And even those first few years, when I said, man, this is going to be fairly tight, I looked at all, hey, what, what are some government programs I could do? Oh, they'll pay me to do timber stand improvement. That helped pay the bills. Oh, I could get this little grant for this habitat improvement over here. There's all sorts of little things I could do for extra income those first few years. And once you can get past the first two or three years, then it just becomes a lot easier. And it's kind of like, um, you've got some tailwinds that kind of push you forward and make it easier. So getting past that first hump into your first farm, if you're driven, financially responsible, hardworking, do what it takes, whatever it takes, and grind out those first couple of years, you'll be fine in 90% of the cases. Gotcha. Did you make any major mistakes along the way when you look back? Tons of them. Tons of them. What's Uh, one or two that come to mind? Habitat mistakes, uh, not knowing how to do things. I mean, but that—that's those are those are good ones to make. You screw up on a on a food plot or something, uh, not a big deal. Not knowing how to deal with neighbors. When I was twenty one, twenty two, dealing with the old cowboy neighbor that, you know, he used to have full reins of this farm, and now I told him I couldn't. Um, not knowing how to deal with those folks, uh, you know, that was that was just a that's just a learning process. Um, Maybe, uh, I mean, nothing, nothing really big mistake wise. I mean, I, I knew I wanted land and, uh, you know, if, if I got burnt a little bit, like, Hey, there's mature trees all over here and there wasn't, I could still, I can still work around that stuff. Sure. So, um, you know, well, that's what, when we're walking these farms, you're like, you can fix just about anything Yeah. or you can fix anything. Yeah. You can fix anything with enough time. So, I mean, some of the things are. 20 years down the road um and i don't want a project usually that's 20 years but um yeah everything usually has a solution to it and your worst case solution you know you buy a farm that's limiting your neighbors won't sell you talk to them and they're like there's no chance i'll sell and you want to grow well that's a farm maybe you sell them where you're like listen there's a definitive roadblock here these people have told me 
for years now, they will not sell. And I finally believe them. Those are the ones that I'd be like, let's make some money, roll it into something else. And you fix it that way by buying something bigger. How do you handle those conversations with, obviously you've pieced together a good chunk here. What are like some of those conversations? I'm, I'm, I assume like I plan on, I, I'm putting words in your mouth, but it's like, this is where I'm going to live. This is what I'm yeah. trying to piece together here. So those conversations start out really casually. Um, I just get to know them. If, if I can tell they're in the right mood or they're the right personality to go further. Hey, you ever think about selling this farm? And I've heard, I'll never, ever, ever sell this farm. Never possible. Well, I own that farm now, one of those. Um, so, you know, I'll just ask them. And sometimes people are like, you know, a lot of, and as long as you're not pushy, if you're not, and, and you're just looking to get along with these people and you understand it's for the long term, like, hey, this is my neighbor. You know, yeah. I'm just getting to know them. And maybe I just casually mentioned, would you ever want to sell this? Or you ever, what's your plans for this down the road? Mm-hmm. And I just put the bug out there. And then I'll just say, if, if they say, you know, I'm not sure, maybe someday or, and then I just say, hey, if you ever think about selling, would you please call me? And then I just remind them of that. And then maybe a year goes by and they're like, hey, you know, we've given it a little more thought. We might sell down the road here. And then I just constantly stay in contact with them. Where are you at with that? You know, and I, I'm never pushy about it. But if they're ready to sell, I make sure that I'm their go-to option. Um, and getting to know my neighbors now, um, you know, they can they can talk to other neighbors that have sold to me. And, you know, they'll say, how did it go? And, and that's the reputation I I have here. I have good relations with my neighbors. I've done well with my neighbors. I've treated them well. Um, I'm honest with them and that comes back. I mean, if I were to burn some of my neighbors and not do what I said I'd do or pulled shenanigans, that would come full circle. And, and then when I wanted to buy the other neighbor, they'd say, no, he pulls all these shenanigans, don't sell to him. And I wouldn't have the opportunity. So just being honest, straightforward, having integrity, do what you say, um, and staying in contact with these people and having a good relationship, you'll get the opportunity. And I mean, worst case, you know, they put it at some high price that you don't want to pay and you say no, at least you had that opportunity. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, here's a, just a, a quick one. What's your favorite uh, CRP number? Like, so you got like the CP dash number. Do you got a favorite one? So there's 42, there's 25, CP2. I can't keep track of, of which ones I have. So usually it's... Um, so I'm going to be a bad one on answering this because I can't keep them all straight. But uh, usually they'll say, well, this one this one requires so many forbs and so many grasses and this types and this ratio. Well, I'll just look at the soil types and I'll just make my own mix no matter what. And sometimes they'll be like, well, you can't have quite as many grasses. And then I'll just dial that back. So it's always a custom mix for me. So that's not a great answer because nobody else really does that. But if you just have a diverse mix for most people, and most of the mixes offer that, like CP, I can't even keep track of all the ones that come out, CP2, 25, 42. But usually they offer um, native warm season grasses and a certain amount of forbs and a ratio between them and so many seeds per square foot, which is getting way too deep into this. But as long as you're picking, you know, five to eight desirable forbs, which that's a big uh, can of worms <laughs> we can get into, which forbs, why? And if you pick four good native, uh, warm season native grasses and a good diverse mix of forbs, you're fine. And I would call, here's what I would do. If you're doing CRP and you're looking for a mix, I would call some of the seed places that know what they're talking about and say, hey, look, at the, these are my goals. I want things that hold up better in the winter. Okay, we'll add the maximum amount of switchgrass and we'll do this type of switchgrass or hey i want birds so i want more forbs or i want some things that the deer will eat on they should know these are the forbs i would put in there here's the different types of native grasses that work well with these forbs so any educated educated um place that you would buy your seed should be able to inform you on this stuff okay we didn't see any water holes on this farm today too no water holes. Not that they don't work and not that I don't like them. It's just one thing that's just not on my list. I've got um, plenty of, of small ponds. I've got plenty of streams. Uh, you know, I would say everybody out there would say, hey, there's there's these list of a thousand things people do to deer farms. You know, there's a thousand different things. And the, here's a fad. or And fads can be very legitimate. Like watering hole could, could be 
you know, somebody could say, man, I've killed a ton of bucks in the water. Hurt. It's just, it's just one of the things I haven't got into and it hasn't, it's just not never been on my priority list, but on this farm, there's plenty of water as it sits. I mean, there's plenty of ponds that I have stands next to that work small ponds that work just great. So I'm not saying for them or against them. And I know mm-hmm. a lot of people have extreme success, especially in like an arid area or, Hey, I've got very little area to work with and I want them to focus on water. So I'm not saying they don't work well. Uh, it's just hasn't been a part of, of what I've needed to do. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's all the questions I have for right now. Okay. Uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time here. I, we've burnt, burnt most of your day, so <laughs> we really appreciate it. It's um, all good. You guys are working here for the rest of the day, right? Yep, yep. Oh, I well, appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll stay as long as you need us, <laughs> as long as we keep good asking asking you questions. Well, <laughs> no, I, I appreciate you having me, and uh, yeah, it's it's great to, to have you out and um yeah you're doing a great job with the podcast appreciate it so if anyone wants to they're interested by this obviously go back and listen to the other two podcasts but where else could they potentially get a little bit more content from what what you have going on so myself uh a lot of guys that are informed with no bias i would say if you want questions answered it's always easier easiest to go on to iowa whitetail uh ask your questions there. We've got all the historical stuff about habitat, double trees, legacies on there. And you can ask questions there. And a lot of times I'll get like the same question a hundred times over from my buddy. So I'm like, Hey, ask it here because everybody else has the same question anyway. So I, tell, we do have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page. And then I have a YouTube channel, which eventually if I get some time, I'll make the videos a little more professional. Um, I've got a couple buddies that do professional video that are, we're doing a, a couple different projects there. Uh, my brother does a 9010 project. Uh, we're trying to do educational things there. So Iowa Whitetail in any of its forms, YouTube, social media, the actual website is where you go for the questions. Uh, and, and that is just a great source. Same with 9010 because we're not trying to sell anything. We're not trying to make money from it. We're just trying to give back information and help people. And that's a one-stop place where I can answer everybody's questions. So that would be the easiest. Awesome. We'll link to all of that. And once again, thank you for your time. You bet. Hopefully it saves, hopefully it flattened the learning curve just a little bit for somebody out there. All good. Appreciate it. There you guys have it. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it with a friend that might learn something as well. Leave a five-star written review. And as always, hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Until next time, see ya.